Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Kevin Lindsay. Welcome to Systems and Cybernetics. Along with my co-host, Tom Schultz, I have the privilege of talking to amazing systems thinkers here on the New Books Network. Welcome to the first episode of 2022. Today, it is my distinct honor to be in conversation with Fritjof Capra. Full stop. I have to admit, I need to let that sink in for a second. I'm a big fan and that's my excitement is going to be hard to contain as as we as we go through the uh, the interview today. In a few minutes we'll be discussing his new book Patterns of Connection: Essential Essays from 5 Decades, published by High Road Books. But first, let me attempt to introduce a man who really needs no introduction. And the funny thing about people who need no introduction, they're usually the ones that get really long, excellent introductions because, well, they deserve them. So here we go. Fritjof Capra is a scientist, educator, activist, and accomplished author. In this new book, he masterfully presents the evolution of this thought over the last five decades. Capra captured the world in 1975 with his first book, The Tao of Physics, in which he proposed the connections between the discoveries of quantum physics and the traditions of Eastern philosophy. Capra's synthesis, representative of the change from the mechanistic worldview of Descartes and Newton to a systemic ecological one, went on to inform his thinking about the life sciences, ecology, and environmental policy. His other influential books include The Web of Life, The Hidden Connections, The Science of Leonardo, and The System's View of Life. The book that fueled my inquiry and influenced my worldview nearly 30 years ago was The Turning Point. It remains a favorite. Note to self, buy grown son his own copy so I can get mine back. As a result of his decades of thinking captured in this body of work, Fritjof Capra remains a major figure at the crossroads of physics, spirituality, environmentalism, and systems theory a founding director of the Center for Eco-Literacy and a faculty member at Schumacher College, Dr. Capra lives across the bay from me in Berkeley, California with his wife and daughter. A warm welcome, Fritjof, to the New Books Network. 
Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me on your program. I was very intrigued by the description of your program when you sent it to me, and I really look forward to this conversation. Well, so do I. So I know you're really busy and you've got lots of things going on. So so tell me, what are, what are you up to these days? Well, you know, my... Uh, one of my last books that you just mentioned, The System's View of Life, co-authored by Pierluigi Luisi, is a textbook which represents a synthesis practically of my whole work. And uh, it it is a synthesis of this emerging new understanding of life, which is inherently multidisciplinary. And so given the structure of our academic institutions, professors are having a hard time using it as a basis for teaching courses. And so I decided to design a model course to show them how it can be done. And I've now been teaching this course, which is uh, widely known now as CAPRA course. I've been teaching this for six years on the internet to over 2,000 participants from all over the world. So I have a lot of experience in in teaching this systems view of life, and that is my main activity right now. Wow. And have you seen, uh, you know, a lot like a big increase in participation over the last couple of years as we've all kind of gotten used to Zoom? Yeah. When we started the course, we limited the numbers at 200, and we would usually have around 150. And now we have around 250 for the last two years for two reasons that first, you know, people stay at home much more as we all do. We are often confined to our homes during the pandemic. And secondly, they are really desperate for answers and for for understanding things in an interconnected way, in this systemic way that I'm teaching. Right. Fantastic. Well, I'm so glad um, so many people are going through the course and uh, taking up this work. Well, we have a lot to talk about here in the next uh, hour or so. So let's let's jump to it. And um, you mentioned the systems view of life, and we're going to come back to that. Um, it, it's absolutely part of this story and part of the last five decades um, uh, of work. But with all of my interviews, my struggle is is definitely how to condense uh, what could be a conversation lasting over several days down to um, an hour. I am going to attempt to do that. And I think the best way to maybe structure the conversation is to spend some time um, on the themes that, that emerge. Often when I talk to authors, they're surprised about the themes that pop out from me and, um, and, and they're interested to hear about what readers you know what what's sinking into readers and what what's emerging for readers but um so i've got some thoughts and questions and i want to make sure that you get the chance to uh make sure that that the messages that you intended uh do come across as well but one question that we always start these interviews with is um really how you came to be a systems thinker and i actually love how in this book we got to read about that. And you, you, you talk about almost that moment when you started to put these pieces together and, and, and started to maybe call yourself a systems thinker. But I'd like you to share that with, with the listeners right now, if yes. you would. Well, I would, I would actually start by going further back, uh, very quickly going to my childhood. 
and uh, there were several uh, formative uh, events and situations in my childhood. One was that I grew up on a farm in in Austria. So the first 10 years of my life I spent on a farm, uh, walking four kilometers to uh, a small elementary school in in a town of about 10,000 inhabitants. Uh, Then uh, living on the farm, I uh, had a very uh, visceral relationship with nature, you know, running around barefoot the whole summer as a child, knowing all the trees and plants and all the critters. This, This was a horticulture business at the same time. And the second uh, formative experience, I would say, was uh, my interactions with my parents. We then moved to Innsbruck. So I spent my youth, my teenage years in the middle of the Alps, again in nature, but this time, you know, a mountain nature. And uh, my mother was a poet and playwright. My father was a lawyer and an amateur philosopher with a fairly large library of philosophical books. And both of my parents were passionately interested in the arts. Innsbruck is just north of Italy, so the summer vacations were often spent in Italy. So as a child, I experienced the Italian Renaissance and Baroque, all this great Italian art. And the conversations around the dinner table were about uh, uh, poetry, literature, philosophy, and art. So, you know, a very broad uh, area. Then in high school, I had a brilliant young mathematics teacher who uh, triggered in me a passionate interest in abstract thinking, mathematics, science, and that's what made me study physics. And then as a young student, I was very influenced by a book by Werner Heisenberg, one of the founders of quantum physics. The book is called Physics and Philosophy. And in it, Heisenberg describes very vividly the conceptual struggle that a handful of physicists had to go through when they faced a new kind of reality in these atomic and subatomic experiments with forced them to radically change their worldview. So those were some of the Um, foundational experiences. And I should also say um, this is not in any way uh, established, but intuitively I feel that systems thinking is very strong in Central Europe, in Austria, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Southern Germany, in those countries, because uh, they were part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, which was a multi-cultural uh, uh, empire where many languages were spoken. And, and most of the time, these people got along together quite well. And so it is It is striking that, uh, you know, several of the great systems thinker of the early 20th centuries came from that region, like uh, Bertalanffy, Norbert Wiener, John von Neumann, and, and many, many others. So I think speaking several languages uh, makes you aware of things from different perspectives. And that's what's 
system thinking is partly about. So I am maybe an exception. I speak, you know, German, English, French, and Italian fluently. But uh, most of my friends in Austria spoke at least two foreign languages. And, and so I think that's part of systems thinking also. That's very interesting. It, and, and so the conditions are, were almost really you know, perfect for, for that kind of uh, sensibility to um, develop. Yeah. You know, so I really appreciated the opportunity to step back in time with you as I, as I read the book. And everyone should know, um, I encourage you to read the book, but I'll just tell you a little bit. Um, we get the opportunity to kind of go back in, in time, but from where you sit right now. As you start each chapter, you're, you're reflecting and providing kind of a, uh, an introduction to those really important essays um, for each one of those, those chapters. So I really kind of liked that, you know, as you're thinking back, um, on those times and why you wrote what you wrote, um, I found that really interesting. And one, well, I, I found it fascinating to write, you know, because first what, what happened, Kevin, was that, uh, I put together all my papers and books and notes into an archive which I gave to the University of California, to the Bancroft Library, which you may know, it's a special library for, for archives. And as I was doing that, that was a long process of several months. And as I was doing that, I discovered several essays that I had written at various times, which were either never published or published in journals and magazines that don't exist any longer. So I thought, why not collect these essays and and publish them. And then I thought, well, I would have to give a historical context. And eventually, you know, this led me to really going back uh, on I mean, my whole career as a scientist and writer. And, you know, I dug out some old calendars and some old correspondence and so on, and really traveled back into time for five decades. It was quite, quite an experience. I bet. Well, I'd like to go back to a very specific time and a, a specific place that you tell us about in the book. Um, you had an experience on a beach in 1969, and I loved that story. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, you, you mentioned formative times. It, feel, it feels like the 60s and 70s, early 70s, those were informative. Those were very formative times for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. Talk, Talk about that that experience and kind of like it set you on a path. Well, uh, in the uh, let's see, um, I spoke about the book by Werner Heisenberg, which influenced my whole scientific thinking and writing and my career as a scientist. And Heisenberg describes very vividly how these few European physicists were faced with a reality that seemed totally strange to them and uh, forced them to change their concepts, their language, their basic way of thinking. And before they were able to do that, they went through an existential crisis. So I read this in the late 1950s. And then in the mid-60s, I became interested in Eastern philosophies, like so many at the time, 
I read the Bhagavad Gita and I read books by D.T. Suzuki about Buddhism, books by Alan Watts and so on. And I found that the teachings of the mystics uh, touched on uh, subjects very similar to Heisenberg's experience, in, in particular the, so, the so-called koan teaching in Zen Buddhism, in a certain school of Zen Buddhism, reminded me of these quantum puzzles that Heisenberg wrote about. And so I, I sensed these parallels between modern physics and uh, the Eastern philosophies. And this was, you know, from reading, partly also from doing meditation, partly from experimenting with psychedelics. These were heady times in, in the late 60s. So, so then one afternoon in 1969, I had what I now call my epiphany on the beach. And uh, what happened was that I was sitting on a beautiful California beach in Santa Cruz, and uh, in a late summer afternoon, and, you know, sitting cross-legged meditating, that was sort of the kind of thing you did those in those days. Meditating on the beach was big. And so it was a beautiful afternoon. The surf came in in a very regular rhythm, and I tried to harmonize the rhythm of my breathing with the rhythm of the surf. And as I was doing that, all of a sudden I became aware of my entire environment being involved in some kind of gigantic cosmic dance. Now, I was a working physicist at the time. Uh, I had done four years of research in, in theoretical physics. So I knew that the sands, the rocks, the water, the air were made of molecules, I knew that those molecules vibrated in in the energy that uh, we know as heat, the thermal vibrations. I knew that they were composed of atoms. I knew that the atmosphere was bombarded by what we call cosmic rays, showers of particles interacting with the atmosphere. So I knew all this from my physics equations and textbooks and you know data of experiments and so on. But in that moment on the beach, that kind of energy dance came to life. And I really felt it and experienced it. And in, in the Tao of Physics, I describe it by saying, I, I, I saw these cascades of energy and I heard their sound. Of course, you can't take this literally, but in, in a way, you know, I sensed that. And at that time, it became quite clear what uh, the Hindu philosophers and artists meant by the dance of Shiva, the Nataraja, the cosmic dancer, that the dance of Shiva was the dance of energy, the dance of matter. And so this was my first uh, really strong emotional and experiential entry into this uh, comparison between physics and Eastern philosophy. Yeah, I, that was such a, a great way to start the book. It just, I think it just laid the, uh, the vibe maybe <laughs> for the book. Um, but I think it's also important to note that, that this was, you know, you, you, you worked with this concept for a long time and, and even I noted that, uh, CERN, um, actually had acknowledged that this discovery, 
between Shiva's cosmic dance and the dance of subatomic matter was like, yeah, this is a thing. Yes, and I'm very proud of that, that uh, at CERN there is a big Shiva statue which the, the research institute was given by the Indian government to commemorate the long years of collaboration between Indian physicists and, and CERN. And uh, they gave them the dance, the, the Shiva statue to express, you know, the parallel between the, the Hindu myth and the energy dance of particle physics that was studied at CERN. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy and very proud that there's a plaque there with quotes from the Tao of physics. But I also want to say, Kevin, that uh, between this epiphany on the beach and the publication of the Tao of physics, there are six years that passed. So I did a lot of work, you know, to, to firm up my intuition, a lot of studies of Eastern philosophy, a lot of uh, uh, work of presenting the concepts of modern physics to a lay audience. So it was not all just, uh, you know, smoking dope and, and, and meditating and intuition. It was a lot of hard work too. Of course. Um, so, you know, speaking of that work, um, you talk in the book about, you know, I, I'm, I've never really studied physics beyond high school, so I'd not heard of a lot of these things. Bootstrap physics struck me as something that was really important in, in your work with Jeffrey Chu uh, that you also describe as your training in, in systemic thinking. Um, so I'd love to, you to talk a little bit about that and the role that that played. Well, uh, the, uh, the bootstrap idea and the bootstrap theory was uh, something that I got fascinated by when I lived in London and worked at Imperial College as a physicist in the early 70s, around, uh, you know, from 1917 to 1974. And uh, the bootstrap theory is an approach to physics which says that uh, there should be no fundamental equations, no fundamental particles, no fundamental anything in your theory. Uh, all particles are made of one and other. They are embodied in one and other and they are really a web of relationships and not a collection of objects. And uh, the, the only principle that you accept is that parts of your theory should be consistent with other parts. There should be no contradiction. And so Jeffrey Chu, who is the author of this approach, which, which, which he developed in the 1950s, um, uh, he uh, wanted to derive all the properties of subatomic particles from this uh, principle of self-consistency. And I found uh, many very uh, striking parallels between Chu's approach and Buddhism, a certain school known as the Avatamsaka school of Buddhism. There's a beautiful metaphor in this school where it says, in the, Hindra, in, in the heavens of Indra, an Indian god, there is a network of pearls so arranged that each one reflects all the others in it. And so I compared this to the bootstrap approach of each particle reflecting the other particles. And 
you know, I I wrote uh, the Tao of Physics in London between 1972 and 1975, and then I moved to California actually to work with Chu. And I moved. My reason for moving to Berkeley, where I still live, uh, was to work with Chu, which I did for you know uh, about ten years. And I saw him uh, every week. Uh, I saw him in a theory group, and I often had discussions with him alone. And this fundamental interconnectedness. Um, as as the basic principle, this web of relationships uh, really forced him and the whole group to think in a very different way. And it was only many years later that I realized that this is really systemic thinking. And, and my training in systemic thinking was in those 10 years of weekly meetings of that theory group uh, for instance, uh, uh, Chu would say uh, the problem of this seeing the world of particles as this interconnected network where nothing is more fundamental than anything else, the problem is where do you start? Where do you start in your description? You can start anywhere. And, and things like that are true of all systemic thinking. And so that that was uh, another very big formative period for me. Yeah. You know, and one quote that I, I noted from the book, and, and you've just alluded to it, you said it in slightly different words, but but verbatim from the book, you, you say the properties of any one phenomenon follow the properties of all the others. And it just feels like that's such a oh, foundational statement and, and so key to yeah. systems thinking. That's right. And and I should add something here, which is very important. So if you, if you visualize the material world as totally interconnected, everything is connected with everything else. And as you just said, the property of any part follows from its relationships to the other parts. If, if this is really true, then you can never know anything because to know any particular part, you would have to know the connections to all the others, which is obviously impossible. It's too much. So here is what, what the great achievement of science has been in, in the modern times, in the 20th century especially, that as scientists we say, okay, everything is interconnected, but some things are connected more than others. And more, they are more important. Some connections are more important than others. And in a first approximation, I will take only the most important connections and I will build a model and see how it works. And if it doesn't work, I have to take into account more interconnections and I will have to improve my model or my theory. And this means that scientific knowledge is always approximate. It is always limited and always approximate. And I remember once in my conversation with Chu, I asked him, uh, what do you think is the greatest achievement of 20th century science? And he said, the realization that all scientific knowledge is approximate. So it was very much, you know, foremost in his mind. 
I'd love it if you could spend a, a bit more time on on the Tao of physics. Uh, it, I'm t- trying to do my math here. I'm mean, 40, 47 years ago. I think that book book came out, um, and um, you write that you at first you believed you know the, the the new physics could be a model for other sciences and for society in general, just as Newtonian physics had been for for many centuries. Yes. Well, what happened was that the Tao of physics was very successful beyond my wildest dreams. And so I lived in London at the time. And as a consequence of this success, I got invited to give talks by many professional associations, many groups, uh, beginning with artists, interestingly, The Chelsea School of Art in London was the first uh, academy, the first university that invited me. The Architectural Association is another well-known art school. And, you know, then I got invited by, you know, healthcare associations, uh, associations of psychologists and psychotherapists, of economists, of anthropologists, and so on. And in those talks where I describe the paradigm shift in physics from a mechanistic to a holistic or ecological worldview, many people would come up to me after the lecture and say, you know, something similar is happening in my fields. And so I got interested in other fields and I expanded my focus. And I became interested in biology, in medicine, in psychology, in economics, and that what led me, you know, to to my further books, uh, especially to my second book, The Turning Point. And while I was writing The Turning Point, I had a big, uh, I went through a big conceptual shift. And when I started, as you just mentioned, when I started, I thought, all these people tell me that classical economics is modeled after Newtonian physics. And Freud's psychoanalysis is modeled after Newtonian physics. And of course, biology and medicine, there's a Cartesian approach of seeing the body as a clockwork. And so I thought, well, now the very core of physics is going beyond this mechanistic model. And now we should listen to the quantum physicists and model economics, biology, and so on after the new physics. And... uh, as, as I researched these various areas, I gradually became aware that they all had to do with life, whether you talk about the economy or the management of human organizations or healthcare or psychology. Uh, it all has to do with life. And physics has nothing to say about life. I mean, physics is relevant to understand biochemistry, but uh, it has no statement to make about the very nature of life. And so I shifted from my interest in physics to the life sciences and in the mid-80s gave up, stopped my work as a working physicist and turned to the study of ecology, uh, systems theory, complexity theory, and so on. And I should also mention that uh, one of the uh, great mentors who 
uh, triggered that shift to the life sciences was Gregory Bateson. And uh, Bateson had a very theatrical, dramatic way of expressing himself. And uh, I gave a seminar at the Esalen Institute in California in uh, the uh, 1970s and in the late 1970s. And he came to the seminar. He, he lived there at the time. And then a common friend asked him, what do you think of this Capra? And Bateson said with his British ap- accent, Capra, the man is crazy. He thinks we are all electrons, you know. He thinks we are all electrons. He put his finger on the problem I had, you know. And uh, I became good friends with him and he influenced my thinking very much and he appreciated me very much. But in this dramatic way, you know, he put me on the spot. And that made me really change and move to what the life sciences. Well, I'm glad you brought him up. I was I was going to ask you about him. Um, you have an essay about him in in, in the book. Um, there's also a, a photograph. Uh, you're a very handsome guy. You look you look so amazing in that that photograph. You're sitting there with uh, Bateson in his living room. Um, yeah, and you know, in that essay, you wrote, in short, to solve the major problems of our time, we need exactly the type of thinking Bateson pioneered. So, uh, yeah, I, I was very curious, and again, really, it was fun to be part of that journey the way you you describe it as as a reader we, we get to tag along with you um as you started to have these sort of new ideas and and start as you started to bring a new kind of way of thinking about your contributions and and physics in this new in this new way right well bateson was really uh one of his uh, famous statements is uh uh, you know, what is the pattern that connects the orchid to the primrose and to the dolphin and to other things and all of them to me. Uh, so the pattern which connects is one of the terms he used, he really loved to use. And that's the, the, the very essence of systemic thinking, yeah? thinking in terms of patterns, in terms of relationships and in terms of context. So when I when I moved to the life sciences, the reason why I made this move is that I was looking for a framework that went beyond physics to integrate the various dimensions of life that I had become interested in in order to discuss and solve uh, some of the major problems of our time. And uh, this search of a larger framework brought me to, you know, systems theory, to uh, Bertalanffy's general systems theory, to cybernetics, and then to complexity theory and the newer uh, systemic understanding of life. So I kind of viewed each of your books um, as I... So I read through this one and um, kind of went back and kind of looked at, at a little bit deeper at, at some of the, the books I've looked at um, in the past. Um, they almost feel like milestones, like, you know, where you've kind of reached a, a point. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, even the, the turning point, was it a turning point for you? How do you sort of, you know, in terms of the accumulation of, of knowledge and experiences and interactions with other thinkers, um, 
do you, did you sort of feel that each one of those points in in your career yes. you were sort of hitting a new yes, milestone? And, you know, uh, looking back now, I can I can tell you why. Uh, the reason is that I take a lot of time uh, to write books, and there's a lot of time between books. If you if you write down the chronology of my books, you will see there are about five years between you know each book and the next. And the reason for that is uh, that I uh, basically have the uh, approach of a scientist. I'm I'm not primarily a writer. I'm primarily a scientist, and I get interested in problems and try to understand them and solve them as a scientist. And when I have enough material and when I think I have really found something, then I write a book about it. But I don't feel compelled to write a book every year or every other year. And this is the reason why I've never had writer's block, you know, because I don't need to write. You know, I write when I have enough interesting material. So the turning point, to come to your question, the turning point to me is the first tentative, very tentative uh, synthesis of the system's view of life. There, there's still a lot of holes in it, uh, but for one thing, this was the first time I used this expression, the system's view of life. That's something I, I coined myself and used in the turning point for the first time. This was in 1982. And uh, uh, it contains... Uh, uh, you know, the, the work of uh, various early systems thinkers, uh, of course, you know, the, the quantum physics and all that, uh, but um, it does not uh, include complexity theory. It does not include the work of Maturana and Varela. Uh, it does not include Gaia theory. And so what happened then was... Uh, I have never been a pure theorist. You know, social change and the betterment of the world was always part of of my attempt, and that's the influence of the 1960s. You know, my formative period, as far as my values are concerned, was in the 1960s when we really wanted to change the world. And so uh, after writing The Turning Point, I spent many years as an activist. You know, I co-founded an an ecological think tank called the Elmwood Institute, which, uh, you know, we ran for 10 years from about uh, 85 to 95 uh, to build up a global network of systemic thinkers and activists. And uh, I got so involved in uh, environmental uh, education and activism that I had no more uh, time for for research or, or for writing. And uh, toward the end of that period, I thought to myself, gosh, I would love to write another theoretical book. I really was missing that. And, and I did. And that was The Web of Life, which was published in 1996. So that that's a long way from 1982 to uh, to 96. So I wrote some small books in between, but the web of life is uh, a more uh, complete synthesis of the system's view, now including 
uh, in the theory of autopoiesis and cognition, the so-called Santiago theory by Maturana and Varela, including Gaia theory by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis, uh, you know, new views of consciousness and, uh, you know, the the new social movements, the movement toward a solar age and ecological age and, and so on. And uh, in, in terms of conceptual framework, I found a synthesis between uh, the works of Maturana and Varela on, and Bateson on the one hand and Ilya Prigozhin on the other hand with his theory of uh, dissipative structures. I, I studied all these theories and I contacted the authors and became friends with many of them. And curiously, I noticed that uh, there was a Prigozhin camp in, in systems thinking and they never talked about Maturana. And there was a Maturana camp and they never talked about Prigozhin. And I pushed them both, you know, actually Varela, I talked to some, some uh, Francisco Varela, and I asked them, you know, these uh, self-generating network that you and Maturana describe, are they also dissipative structures in the sense of Prigozhin? Do they have constant flows of energy and so on? And he said, yes, of course. And I said, so why don't you say so in your work? You know, I put him on the spot and said, well, you know, that's the work of Prigozhin. That's not our stuff. So I also went to Prigozhin and did the same thing with him and said, you know, what, what about uh, the network aspect of dissipative structures that Maturana describes? And Prigozhin said, oh, Maturana, you know, I can never understand him. You know, why why does he use all these other terms? Why doesn't he do what I do? So there was a real, not an antagonism, but a sort of benign neglect on both sides. And so my main aim for the Web of Life was to design a synthesis between those two approaches, which I did. And the thing that was missing was the social dimension of life. I, I talk about biological life, I talk about the cognitive dimension, but not about the social dimension. And it took me another, let's see, six years to publish The Hidden Connections, which includes the social dimension in the synthesis. So every time, you know, I yeah. took many yeah. years to work yeah. this out. Yeah, I really, I, I appreciate that. And I think the essays are so... Um, powerful because you know they're really raw thinking like this is what's going on right now in my mind sometimes they were really you know relevant talks you were giving somewhere at that moment this was what was on your mind and this is what was occurring uh for you i you know i, th I think that was really powerful just on the on the last one i what i really appreciated um that you wrote um on um, the web of life was just, you know, building that, that theory that unifies mind, matter, and life just like that. It just was, and that it was really yeah. necessary to build that synthesis or bridge between uh, networks and flows uh, in order absolutely. for that to happen. Um, I want to, uh, ask you about crisis of perception. You use the term quite a bit, uh, 
throughout your the 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 writing so over over many years you use this term crisis of perception i think i noticed it first in an essay that was written in 1986 and um so i want to spend some time on this and but first ask you what you mean by crisis of perception yeah what what i mean is that from a systems point of view you realize very soon that the major problems of our time are all interconnected. None of them can be solved in isolation, whether you talk about energy or the environment or climate change, economic inequality, and now in our present the COVID pandemic, all these problems are interconnected and we could spend the whole hour just you know giving you examples of how they are interconnected and ultimately i realized this in in the early 1980s late 1970s actually ultimately they must be these crises must be seen as one and the same crisis which is essentially a crisis of perception it derives from the fact that we still use the 17th century machine metaphor for our economics, for our medicine, for you know our healthcare and, and various various problems, uh, instead of uh, you know the the metaphor of the network and the systemic thinking. I believe I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly where I got the term, but I think Hazel Henderson, an, an old friend and colleague who is also a systemic thinker and a self-taught economist, used a similar term. The fact that the, these crises are all interconnected and that there is a problem of perception is something she used. And I sort of then put it in a nutshell by saying this is a crisis of perception. Got it. Um, you write uh, at some point. You um, you wrote that it this hasn't dawned on our political leaders um, and other institutions, and this recognition that a profound change of perception and thinking is needed if we are to survive. Um, it hasn't reached the, our corporate leaders. And, and then you say, in fact, their resistance to change almost looks like a conspiracy. And then you also said that a revision seems to now be taking place. You wrote this in 1989. And I just wonder what you would say now about that. Uh, you know, the revision itself, ha has it been taking, has it continued to take place? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what, what happened uh, was that uh, complexity theory, this new nonlinear mathematics that was developed in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, raised systems thinking to a new level where it was possible for the first time to model complex nonlinear systems, which all living systems are, mathematically. And out of this modeling came several new concepts came uh, the idea of emergence, the spontaneous emergence of novelty at critical points of instability, which is actually the dynamics of the basic creativity of life. So that's a, a major discovery of complexity theory. And also this integration 
that that I uh, developed between it, integration of four dimensions of life, the biological, the cognitive, the social, and the ecological. This would not be possible without complexity theory. So that's on the theoretical front. On the practical front, uh, we were, and I described this in the book in some detail because you mentioned 1989, that that was a sort of a key year. 1989 was when the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, it, it was the time when Nelson Mandela was freed. It was the time still when Gorbachev had a tremendous influence on, on world events. And uh, it was the end of the first decade of green politics. And so we believed at that time that this turning point that I had been writing about was really just around the corner now. That all, you know, uh, all, all the the planets had lined up to use a new age <laughs> phrase. So uh, what happened then was in the 1990s, something totally new and unexpected happened, and that was globalization, economic glo- and corporate globalization, which took everybody by surprise with the information technology and the new kind of global economy. And it uh, took us a whole decade to absorb that and and deal with it. But then I think uh, at the end of the 1990s, we were again at the same place that the 1999 was the date, uh, November, I think it was 1999, of the Seattle WTO meeting and the the foundation of uh, a new global civil society. And so during the last decade, the last, sorry, the last two decades, you know, 2000 and between 2000 and today, uh, the global civil society has founded a number of research institutes and centers of learning, such as Schumacher College or the Rocky Mountain Institute or the Foreign Policy Institute, the World Watch Institute, and so on and so forth. And uh, the discipline of eco-design has emerged. And uh, what what I wrote in, uh, you know, in the 1990s was that the systemic problems of our time need corresponding systemic solutions. That is, solutions that do not deal with any problem in isolation, but always in relationship to other problems. And in those 20 years, those research institutes of the global civil society have developed hundreds of those systemic solutions. So this is uh, the difference in the web of life, I describe some of them. But in the systems view of life with Pierluigi Luisi, we spent 60 pages uh, reviewing the most important of these systemic and sustainable solutions. And we come to the conclusion that today we have the technologies, we have the, the, the ideas, the conceptual framework and the financial possibilities to solve all these problems and to move toward a sustainable future. So the problems are no longer conceptual nor technological. 
there are problems of uh, values of political power and political will. Mm. You you write, the design principles of our future social institutions must be consistent with the principles of organization that nature has evolved to sustain the web of life. A unified conceptual framework for the understanding of material and social structures, such as the one offered in that essay, will be essential for this task. I mean, I think that's that really kind of sums it up. It, you know, it, and and you write that in in your chapter called the full synthesis. This is kind of when it feels like you're kind of arriving at that that point. You're bringing it all home. Yes, uh, I I had my my full synthesis was published in the book The Hidden Connections in two thousand and two. What is new? in uh, the systems view of life are two things. One is the contribution of Pierluigi Luisi, who is a biochemist at the University of Rome, and his specialty is uh, what is called molecular evolution and the origin of life on Earth. So there's a whole chapter on this prebiotic evolution and theories about the origin of life. And uh, in addition, he contributed a lot of biochemistry to the book, which I didn't have in my other books, uh, a lot of evolutionary theory. And from the practical point of view, it's those 60 pages where we review those solutions to our problems that are systemic and sustainable, which did not exist 20 years earlier. So those are the developments of the last 20 years. Mm. Um, I I love the the reference you made to the Earth Charter, and and the work you did with that. Um, there's an amazing um, graphic that that you've built that kind of talks to all the the, the connections and and really what you describe as a systemic vision that the Earth Charter laid out for us. Um, how, how well do you think we're, we're, we're doing on executing on that, that vision? Well, not, I, I don't think we're doing very well uh, because uh, if, if you think that uh, our various researchers and engineers and, and ecologists have solved all the problems we have uh, in a systemic and sustainable way. So why don't our political and corporate leaders help us to scale them up? All these solutions have been tested in various parts of the world in a small scale. Why don't we scale them up? Why don't we employ them everywhere? Well, it's it's the same the same answer as to the question, why don't we get the whole world vaccinated? You know, why why don't we distribute the vaccines that you and I probably have had, you know, I've had three shots of COVID vaccine. Why don't we do this with everybody in Africa or in, in other parts of the world? Uh, and and the answer is the same. Uh, it's a question of values, basically corporate greed, and therefore a question of ethics. So we need to put ethics on the table. And the Earth Charter is a declaration of 16 ethical principles and values that would allow us to build, as the text says, a um, sustainable, uh, just, and peaceful world. 
It's a magnificent text, but it is not widely known enough and it is not implemented enough. Because when you look at our political system, whether it's in the United States or in Europe or in Brazil or in other parts, it's totally corrupt. We have institutionalized corruption where politicians don't do what people ask them to do, what people elect them to do, in fact, but do what their corporate sponsors tell them to do. So so it's a huge ethical problem. Yeah, yeah. So as we um, start to draw our conversation to a close, and I'm afraid we're, we have to, unfortunately, um, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the last chapter in which you really come full circle and revisit science and spirituality. And really it's, I think that that inquiry you started uh, on that Santa Cruz beach in 1969. So what role do you think spirituality needs to play in, in all of this today? Well, first of all, I think I should say what I came to realize over those decades was that uh, there is a very important distinction we need to make between spirituality and religion. And uh, people often don't make this distinction. And when they talk about science and religion, you will find scientists that have a lot of problems with religion and the other way around, whereas others don't at all, whereas others say that two approaches are completely consistent. And the reason for this paradox is that uh, there are significant connections and relationships between the worldview of modern science and the worldview of traditional spirituality, whether it is indigenous spirituality, Eastern spirituality, or Christian spirituality. But when it comes to religion, which is the uh, institutionalization of the spiritual experiences of their founders, when it comes to religion, they often tend to become dogmatic and fundamentalist, as do scientists, by the way. We, we are not you know, free of guilt here. We also believe in scientific dogmas. Uh, we, we, we say, as I said before, that all scientific knowledge is approximate, but when it comes to practice, we often don't act like this. So there, there is an antagonism between science and religion, but not between science and spirituality. And what what they have in common is the basic experience of oneness, of belonging to a larger whole. And that is also the basic teaching of ecology, if you wish. Uh, interconnectedness, embeddedness, belonging to a whole are key concepts of ecology, as is community. You know, e- ecosystems are ecological communities in which. Uh, the various members of the community all collaborate, uh, they they network with one another, they form partnerships and so on. Uh, similarly, in the spiritual realm, realm, you have spiritual communities, they're called sanghas in Buddhism, for example. And um, so uh, they, they have a lot in common. And as we 
go on deeper and deeper into our exploration of life and uh, you know uh, theories of living systems we realize more and more what we share with the rest of the community of life we realize that we not only share the same basic molecules of life but also the the same uh, patterns of Uh, pathways of metabolism, the same principles of organization. So we are really part of this whole web of life. And this this knowledge can be extremely satisfying and and rewarding for both scientists and everybody else. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Friedhoff, before I let you and the listeners go, I I would like to end with a quote from your epilogue, if I may. It's just one that that really struck struck me, and and uh, well, I'm just going to read it. My own contribution to this activism over the last few years has been to disseminate knowledge of the system's view of life and its philosophical, spiritual, ethical, social, and political implications as widely as possible. My motivation for dedicating all my energies to this task is based on the realization that even though we may not be able to overcome our global crisis and save human civilization, if we are to succeed in this existential challenge, we will do so only by radically reorganizing our ways of life, businesses, technologies, and social structures. In other words, by implementing the systemic solutions to our global problems that already exist and have been tested successfully around the world. So I love that. You sound... I think way too humble as you, as you say those words or as, as you write those words. Um, and I, and many others, I have immense gratitude for these contributions. So I want to thank you. I should say that, that this teaching that I do now in my online course is extremely rewarding to me because my but course participants around the world have begun to form study groups and project groups and really taking these ideas out and, and forming a global community of systemic thinkers and activists. And um, that's the highest reward I can get. Yes, you must be extremely proud. So thank you for that. And, and thank you for spending time with me today. It has been a pleasure. I really appreciated it. This is Kevin Lindsay. You've been listening to my conversation with Fritoff Capra about his 2021 book, Patterns of Connection, Essential Essays from Five Decades. Thanks for listening, and until next time, so long.